Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The books of Kings track the division of Israel's kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, narrating each one's demise. Yet Kings is no mere history. The sacred record holds a message still relevant for God's people today. Tune in for part two of our interview with Walter Meyer III, this time on volume two of his commentary on Kings, which covers chapters 12 through 22. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Walter Meyer III earned his Ph.D. from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary. Walt, welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you very much. So if someone were preaching or merely even reading through Kings, what is the dramatic storyline one should look for? The storyline is about God. So I mentioned this is a history of the Hebrew monarchy and to a lesser extent, you know, history of of prophets as they interacted with the kings. And then how these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, declined, declined spiritually and eventually then came to an end. But behind all this, of course, is the Lord, the controller of history, the Lord of nations. And so this is a story about God and Kings, both books, First and Second Kings, uh, these books present to us God as the holy, just, and righteous God. And he gave his word to the Israelites and his prophets, but he also wanted from them covenant loyalty and worship of him alone. And the nation departed from this, the majority, the majority of the people. Of course, there were always those who were faithful to the Lord, but these people made up a godly minority. So I'm talking about the majority of the people unfaithful to the Lord. And so God has to act in his justice and righteousness and holiness. And he was long suffering, but eventually then because the people majority persisted in their rebellion against the Lord, he had to exercise his just judgment. And so both kingdoms came to an end. But in all this too, we see God's grace and mercy and love is being long-suffering with the people. He's giving them prophets to try and bring them to repentance. He's wanting the people to return to him in sincere faith and obedience. But again, people, um, for the most part, rejected God's message to them through the prophets. But we also have God's grace and mercy and love brought forth for us because of the continuing special relationship between God and the house of David. And this relationship is so important because, again, God in Second Samuel chapter 7 promised David, indicated to David, that the promised Savior, the Messiah, would be from his house, from his dynasty. And therefore, kingship would forever be with the house of David. And so we also see God you know, preserving the house of David. And that is the key to understanding those last four verses at the end of Second Kings. You know, things look bad for Israel and in particular for the house of David, the royal line. But those last four verses give a note of hope 
because the king there, uh, Jehoiachin, is brought out of prison and he's treated kindly. And he's the foremost representative at that point of the Davidic line. And now he's brought out of prison, treated kindly. And that gives this note of hope that God is looking after the Davidic line and he will preserve it until someday the Savior will come. In your commentary, you develop a section called Losing the Truth, a Motif in Kings. Would you tell us about this? Yes, uh, Losing the Truth, a Motif. Um, I have three basic angles for that. First of all, the matter of a people, you know, a nation, having the truth, but then losing it, rejecting it, discarding it, ignoring it, pushing it aside, and so losing the truth. And so that would be, you know, with this nation, Israel, as just mentioned, you know, they had the word of God from previous prophets. They had the word of God uh, from prophets who operated during the time of the Hebrew monarchy. And God wanted his people to be faithful to him and serving him. And they had this word of God, which would have been keeping them in the faith and also guiding them in their living. But the majority of the people rejected this word, did not follow it, and so then uh, God's judgment had to come on them. So the nation Israel, for the most part, you know, in the history of kings, losing the truth. Now, there's also this angle, second angle, in the matter of an individual starting out as a godly, believing individual, but then having a, a bad ending. And I just mentioned Solomon, so I just went through Solomon. I don't have to do that again, how he started out and how he was so richly blessed by the Lord. And he was zealous for the Lord. He was a great theologian. That comes forth in his prayer of dedication in First Kings chapter 8, the dedication of the temple. But then again, you know, how Solomon ends up, according to the history there in First Kings chapter 11. And another one would be, uh, for example, King Joash, who was a young boy when he took the throne, he had a godly counselor, Jehoiada, and during the lifetime of his godly counselor and mentor, then Joash was faithful to the Lord. But after the death of Jehoiada, we have now the sad story of Joash being influenced by the wrong people and going astray. And so he had an unhappy ending, and it, it seems that he was unfaithful then to the Lord. Now, the third angle that I bring out is the matter of a believing father, but then he is succeeded by a son who is unbelieving. And so this is, you know, a very sad story as well. In that way, losing the truth. So the father had the truth and he no doubt taught it to his son, but then the son in the course of his lifetime rejects the truth. And one of the key examples here would be the relationship between Hezekiah and Manasseh. So Hezekiah, the father, Hezekiah, godly king for the most part, and no doubt giving his son proper instruction. But Manasseh then, you know, perhaps the worst king in the history of the southern kingdom and carrying on in a persecution of the truth and of God's people. But no comment. Uh, Michael, this is something we have in Chronicles, but not in Kings. In Chronicles, we have this report that at the end of his life, however, Manasseh was brought to repentance, and he carried on a reformation. But for the author of Kings, uh, this was too little, too late, and that's why he omits that you know, in his history. Your second volume of commentary covers 1 Kings chapters 12 through 22. 
What would you say is the major message of this section? And how do the stories of Elijah and Elisha fit in? Well, I would say this, that the major message, I believe, of 1 Kings 12 to 22 is the division of the united monarchy into the two kingdoms. And then we have much focus from that point on in for the rest of 1 Kings, we have much focus on the northern kingdom. And how the northern kingdom went astray right from the start with the first king, Jeroboam I. And he is the one who set up uh, the golden calves, one at the southern point of his kingdom in Bethel and one on the northern point of his kingdom in Dan. And how he was leading the people astray from the start. Now, there's discussion among scholars and there's some debate as to how those calves should be understood. Uh, some see them as just outright idolatry. Uh, some see them as a perverted form of Yahweh worship, you know, portraying Yahweh, you know, as above the calves, being supported by the calves, Yahweh in invisible form above the calves. So there is debate in the scholarly world. Whatever we can say for sure that Jeroboam the first had a bad influence on his kingdom from which they never recovered. And so this is the continuing theme, you know, and this king continued on in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And so that is, you know, a major message there in 1 Kings chapters 12 to 22. Now, another major message is things were bad enough because of the reign of Jeroboam the first and his ungodly influence on his kingdom, but things got worse with Ahab taking the throne with his queen Jezebel, who came from Phoenicia, and she brought with her her native religion, namely Baal worship. And so now this was an added negative in the northern kingdom. And at this point then, this point of crisis, God raised up the prophet Elijah. And so his story is well known, and how Elijah boldly you know, resisted uh, the bad influence of Ahab and Jezebel. Now that's seen on Mount Carmel, uh, the two altars and fire coming down from heaven. And later on, Elijah pronouncing God's judgment on the house of Ahab, that'd be first Kings chapter 19. And then how that judgment came to be fulfilled, you know, began to be fulfilled. And we have that later on with the death of Ahab in first Kings chapter 22. So there we have, you know, three of the major aspects of those chapters 12 to 22. First of all, Jeroboam the first, and then Ahab and Jezebel, and then the prophet Elijah. Now, also in First Kings, in First Kings chapter 19, we have the story of God directing Elijah to uh, point out and to um, designate his successor, and that would be Elisha. And so, Elijah put his mantle on Elisha. And so he was going to be the successor of Elijah once Elijah's ministry was finished. And so that then would take us into 2 Kings. Well, how long did it take you to research and write these volumes? And is there any particular memory you'd like to share, perhaps a newfound insight along the way? <laughs> I'm chuckling, Michael, because of the fact that it took a number of years. It took a number of years, and maybe I'll just leave the exact number, you know, as a private matter here, as, as kind of a secret, but uh, it took me a number of years. 
Um, but I would say this, that, you know, in writing uh, on First Kings, uh, the, the material accumulated and the plan at first was that there would be, you know, one volume, one volume for First Kings and one volume for Second Kings. But by the time, you know, the editors got to um, my material and the editor in chief is Chris Mitchell. And it's been a joy to work with him and also Julene Dumit. Uh, at Concordia Publishing House. But when they got to the material that I had accumulated for First Kings, they made the determination, well, <laughs> this is going to be two volumes. And so that's how that ended up. So First Kings chapters 1 to 11 came out in 2018. And then First Kings chapters 12 to 22 came out in 2019. And uh, since then, I've been working on Second Kings. I'm hoping that it won't take me as long to complete Second Kings as it did First Kings. Now, a particular memory, well, I would just say this, is that I you know, designate a pericope and mark off these verses then for study. Each new pericope is a new adventure. And I'm never completely sure from the start how it's all going to end up. Because in doing this close examination of the text, then some things come out which I hadn't seen before, which I hadn't known before. And also I study other, you know, other scholars and I get some good ideas from them. And so that's what I mean when I say that each new pericope taken up is a new adventure. And I'm just excited to do it with each one. Before we let you go, would you give us an update on your further work on Kings? Oh, um, I am. All right. I'm right now in, in uh, Second Kings uh, chapter four. Uh, there have been um, various reasons for delay and not going as fast as I'd like, but uh, I'm in Second Kings chapter four. I've also been working on some chronological issues and looking beyond Second Kings into evidence that we have from records coming from other countries in the ancient Near East. And especially, for example, the annals of the Assyrian kings. And for, from Moab, we have... Uh, the Moabite stone. And that is a very important piece of evidence as well. And so taking those extra biblical sources, but also looking, of course, at Second Kings, and then trying to come up with some kind of a chronology for this history in Second Kings. And from the start, I'll have to say that any proposal is going to be somewhat indefinite. But I'll uh, put something down. I feel the need to do that, and I'll give the reasons for that you know, in my commentary. So that's the latest, Michael, on Second Kings. Well, this has been a terrific exploration of the Book of Kings. Thank you for joining us, and blessings on your further labors. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I enjoyed interviewing with you, and thank you for carrying on this interview. I appreciate it. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.